Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 49 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Today we are joined by dietitian Heidi Turner. Heidi has been a registered dietitian in private practice for over 12 years and she loves what she does and this really comes across in our interview. She's currently the medical nutrition therapist at Seattle Arthritis Clinic at Northwest Hospital in Seattle. And she sees a broad range of very complex immune and chronic issues every day, but her specialty is helping her patients feel less pain and improve chronic symptoms through making changes in their diet. Today, we're talking about inflammation and chronic issues. So we talk about histamine intolerance, which is something that so many SIBO patients experience, and also autoimmunity and its connection with SIBO and gut health, which for me personally is very interesting as I do have my own autoimmune conditions, and also what inflammatory conditions we can see when somebody also has SIBO and what we should be doing. Um, should we be focusing on the SIBO or the other conditions? And there's plenty of talk about SIBO nutrition, especially coming from the dietitian herself. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with Heidi Turner. It's wonderful to have you on the show, Heidi Turner. Thanks so much for coming onto the Healthy Gut Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really interested in today's topic because we're going to be sort of diving into autoimmunity and inflammation, particularly when it comes to SIBO. But I'd love to start off with talking about how you became the person you are today who has such an interest in autoimmunity and uh, inflammation in particular. Well, sure. I was kind of thrust into it. Um, about 12 years ago, when I first started my practice, I started working with a group of rheumatologists at the Seattle Arthritis Clinic. And, um, and seeing a really complex population, um, those with autoimmunity are quite complex. And so, you know, in starting out in my private practice, I was doing a lot of uh, elimination diets. This is just, we would it was a little bit more of a standard practice at that time because, you know, any good functional uh, dietitian uh, knows that you know we we work with the gut first. And I'd say you know ninety to ninety five percent of the patients that I work with who have autoimmunity um, often have gut issues as well. So when I see that gut is 
on, then I'm really looking to calm that down as much as I possibly can. So back in the beginning, beginning I was doing a lot of work with elimination diets. And if, for those who aren't familiar with an elimination diet, basically you're, just, you're taking out just a whole plethora of foods, 20 or 25 foods out of the diet and taking things down to a really simple place, um, seeing if any of the symptoms reduce. So not just gut symptoms, but also you know, pain, joint pain, any of the other symptoms that patients might have had. And we see how they do. And then we rebuild things back one food at a time. And we see uh, what they're reacting to. And so, you know, we would do these diets and, you know, the patient was always feeling better when they would come back in. Most of the time they'd feel better when they come back in. And when they'd add foods back in, sometimes they'd have one or two foods that they would react to. And that was a little bit more, okay, gluten or dairy or any number of foods. But it was this other population that when they would add any of the foods back in, they would start to react. And all of a sudden we had you know, these patients that were having to stay on these elimination diets in order to feel well. And I started to really, you know, once, once we see there's a level of, of reactivity in the guts and there's food intolerances, then what we do is, you know, go in there with probiotics and try and do gut healing supplementation and enzymes and acids and things like that to help support and heal that gut. But nothing that I was doing or that I knew to do was working. And I would try to get these foods back in and the patient was just becoming more and more reactive. And I just couldn't figure out what was going on. And so um, how I got led to SIBO was that was around the time that Dr. Mark Pimentel's um, book came out, uh, The IBS Solution. And I picked it up and I started reading it and I started putting this together and going, you know, I wonder if... I wonder if this is what we're working with. I wonder if this is this population that is reacting to all these different foods, having all these different gut symptoms. If we're looking with a bacterial overgrowth issue that is also impacting how, what kind of pain that they're experiencing. And so I started working um, very, uh, very strongly in this area um, and, and testing many of my patients, doing hydrogen breath testing for many of my patients and seeing that this population um, had a really strong likelihood for having SIBO. And that when we would treat it, not in every case, but when we would treat it, not only would we see that gut calm down more, we would be able to build the diet back, uh, get some of those food sensitivity, foods that they were sensitive to back in, but we would also see some of their um, autoimmune symptoms reduce as well. So it was this wonderful, <laughs> it's been this wonderful kind of path to getting to SIBO. And then now, what, four years later of working with SIBO, where that's taking me, it's just, you know, been remarkable to see the, the difference in patients in really getting to that source of what's going on in the gut and seeing how that impacts that autoimmune situation. Mm, yeah, it's so interesting. And I know many of my listeners are falling into that category where they are the SIBO patient and they're reacting to everything and they're down to a handful of foods. And I commonly hear from people who say, even water gives me symptoms. What can people be doing when they're in that sort of much of a 
of a reactive state that, you know, even water, even a glass of water is just help making them bloat and feel terrible? (laughs) Oh, that's a hard question to answer because everyone is so incredibly different as far as why that situation is occurring. So, you know, if obviously if we haven't treated the SIBO, then we want to be treating the SIBO. And if we haven't gotten to the underlying cause of why the SIBO is there, we need to get to that underlying cause. Um, But there are so many other foods that the body can be reactive to. Um, I mean, starting with just food, (laughs) starting with just the, I'm really looking at just seeing reactivity to the process of digestion. Um, I'm seeing just more reactivity that the body is learning to be in a more reactive state in the gut. And we start to build a lot more fear around the food. Um, we start to build, uh, certainly more reactivity. Um, if the gut is in a more inflamed state, then we're going to continue to see more reactivity. And we start to see that diet just get pared down more and more and more and more. So it becomes when I'm looking at that population, when we're at that state and we've treated the SIBO and we're really trying to get to this underlying situation of, you know, why the SIBO is there in the first place, looking at that dysmotility, um, you know, looking at the stress in someone's life, looking at all the potential contributing factors in the situation, and we're still getting that level of reactivity when we're adding foods back in, I really start doing a lot more work with um, looking at this from just a purely um, stress-based reaction, um, that the brain has learned something, that it should be fearing the process of digestion because it is problematic to that person and it is very stressful. Uh, there's a stress response in that process of digestion. And so what I've been working with is trying to not just get you know, different foods in that I think might be more or less problematic, but also trying to train the brain in such a way that we can um, assure it that it's okay, that we can calm that level of reactivity down. And I do so by, by really, when we, when we get to that place, we're really trying to rebuild that diet back up again. Um, where I work with the patient is I try to um, really prepare them before the food even enters the mouth so that we are working with, I work with my patients a lot with meditation so that there's a level of um, readying so that we're always trying to stimulate that parasympathetic nervous system response. Um, I work a lot with vagal tone exercises and that, that vagus nerve, which kind of innervates that parasympathetic nervous system and tells the body that it's time to digest. We try to strengthen that. But prior to that food coming in, we do some deep breathing exercises. I use digestive bitters. So I place the bitter on the tongue about 10 minutes before the patient is going to eat. Uh, And it's basically just getting the body ready for that digestive process to occur. So it's saying, okay, we're going to digest now. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to freak out about it when the food comes through. It's okay. So it's calming your nervous system and it's preparing that gut to start getting ready to digest. We take away all external influences, no screens. You know, we really try, you know, not a lot of conversation. We try to just keep you calm during the meal. And before you take that food in, like there's a real, you know, kind of thinking very positively about this food. This is a nourishing food. And it's something that the body's going to accept. It's chewed very well and swallowed. So that I really try to 
change that response to the food coming through initially, change the whole response to digestion. And in that, what I will typically see, and in sort of choosing which foods we think might be better tolerated, depending upon the person, then I might see, start to see better tolerance overall. Mm, I could literally hug you with you talking about that because I, th- I wish that that was common practice amongst our SIBO population. And there is so much fear um, by our SIBOers because food has made us feel sick. And I, I just see and hear it so commonly where people say, I'm terrified of food. I'm terrified to eat something because I feel so sick. I'm so sick of feeling like this. So there's so much negative emotion around it. And I just think it's wonderful to hear that that is a process that you adopt with your patients. And something that I actually adopted myself without um, you know, I, I came to it through my own conclusions when I realized that I had enormous amounts of fear around food as I started to go through my SIBO treatment. And I and I've pretty much did everything that you talk about um, around just changing my thought process, met, including some meditation, cutting out screen time, sitting down and visualizing the nutrients coming into my body and, and starting to love the food rather than hate the food. And I tell you what, that made an enormous difference. And I felt it within days. How quickly do you see results when it comes to applying these additional supportive practices when it comes to reintroduction of of new foods? It takes a little while. I think if you're working with the vagal tone exercises, and when I, when I talk about vagal tone exercises, um, the three that I usually will, will uh, incorporate are um, aggressive gargling and um, depressing the back of the tongue with like a tongue depressor or a pen, um, and then singing, right? So kind of, you know, trying to kind of stimulate that area where that vagal nerve is being uh, innervated. Um, those are the three that I use. And then when we're working with the deep breathing, you know, it kind of depends on what's going on in your life. If you tend to be one who's kind of, you know, going, going, going on, 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 highly stressed, um, then I think it's going to take a longer period of time to really calm that whole situation down. Deep breathing, you know, I mean, certainly getting into a meditation practice, I can see benefits within a couple of weeks. Um, vagal tone, I think that you just need to like, just do that. Just know that that's just something that you need to do. And that that's something that don't look for the immediate response. Just continue with those practices. The deep breathing, like I can see, you know, people do that at the meal. Like when they start to react, if they start to get that reaction, if you immediately start moving into a deep breathing practice and are really comfortable with that practice is when the practice that I tell my patients to do is, you know, four deep diaphragmatic breaths in eight breaths out, four in, eight out. So that's that extension that really encourages that parasympathetic nervous system response. So sometimes like in the middle of that meal, if you're getting response and we start applying that breath, we can get you or at least ameliorate or reduce some of the reaction that you experience. So I think vagal tone is going to take a while, but the actual like really learning and getting good at meditation depends upon where you're at in the whole process and how you're, you know, how good you are at it. But if you really get solid with it, you can really apply that in, you know, and and you can get really good response from it fairly quickly. Mm. I really think it has to do with like how high we're starting, like how stressed you have been for what period of time? What is your history of trauma? What are all the past things that might make you more 
reactive in this situation? How do we, it's going to take a little or a lot longer <laughs> to kind of unwind that whole situation. And for those people that have been, you know, they picked up some food poisoning and then they've been sick and it might have only been a month or a few months for them, um, you know, that the that nervous system response or the anxiety response around food will be less embedded than someone like myself that had food intolerances from birth. And so that I've just had, I've always had food issues. I've always had stomach issues or gut issues. So to me, it was like, breathing. It was just my life. Um, so having to retrain my approach to food was, is still a work in progress for me because that's been, that was 36 years of my life and I'm, I'm 39 now. And, you know, it's only been three or two and a half years, um, of feeling quite nice. (laughs) What's like having to, to rewire your brain basically. And that's, that's going to take a while. (laughs) You know, we kind of get into this, oh, it's SIBO. Okay. I'm going to correct it and I'll just take these herbals. And then, you know, we all know (laughs) anyone who listens here, I'm sure knows that it isn't that easy, but there's sort of the expectation that once we get into the treatment, that there's going to be a level of, you know, things are going to resolve fairly quickly. And it's like, no, this is just the, it's the symptom of more right? It's the symptom of more and what are all the pieces in this puzzle? Because it's so many pieces, as we know, that that impact this gut. It's our emotional life. It's our hormonal life. (laughs) It's um, our diet. It's, you know, where we've been in our life. It's, you know, um, it's the bacteria that's in there. It's our environment. It's our environment. Um, It's the relationships that we have. You know, there's so many factors that, you know, kind of add up to, um, this nervous system response and this nervous system, um, activation in our gut. So it is, it's a lot of like unrewiring and kind of untangling these wires and kind of plugging them into, you know, a way that works for you in this body now and the way that you want to live and the way that you want to feel. So it, it's, you know, and you, you've talked about kind of building your dream team, right? You know, and it's like, that's really critical as far as finding all the pieces that need to get rewired and use different practitioners to help you in that rewiring process. Exactly. And what one person's dream team comprises of won't be suitable for the next person. And, exactly. and so really listening to your body, listening to your emotional state and and thinking quite deeply sometimes around where do I feel like I need help? And one thing that I do with my um, clients who go through my SIBO coaching program is, you know, really stopping and taking the time to listen to the body because the body can tell us very clearly what it it needs help with. And, um, and I love hearing from my clients when they say to me, Rebecca, I, I've been listening and I can see that I need help with this area or with that area, but I never would have made that connection before. I never stopped mm-hmm. to listen. And, and it's really powerful. We are actually, um, great healers of our own bodies when we give the, our bodies and our minds the opportunity to be connected with each other and, and to pause and listen. Um, I know my listeners will want me to ask this and I'm interested in it myself. You talked about the vagal um, toning exercises and aggressive gargling. Can you explain what aggressive gargling actually means? (laughs) 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 Yeah, I explain this every day. Um, Yeah. So, you know, if you kind of think like typically when we gargle, we kind of put a bunch of fluid in our mouth and we, you know, and we kind of go 
you know, it's sort of, it's a, it's a, it's a rolling gargle, I guess is what you would say. And we do it for just a little bit and then we spit out and we're done. But we usually are doing it with mouthwash or, you know, something like that. So typically when we're doing more of an aggressive gargle, we're taking like maybe a tablespoon of water in and we're just kind of, it's almost like it's kind of buffering it. So, and I'll, I'll kind of, what it should sound like is like, like that. So you could do it without any fluid whatsoever, but sometimes when you put like a little bit of water in there, like <clears throat> even if I just did it now, it kind of irritates my, my throat a little bit. So putting that little bit of water in there, just maybe a tablespoon and kind of doing that, um, it's really that vibration is really what we're looking for more than anything. It's that level of vibration. Mm. So it's an aggressive gargle. Mm. It's just, uh, it's stronger than you might do. And it's for a longer period of time. So I usually recommend doing like doing it in 10 second spurts. So that's probably about the amount you're going to be able to do it. Um, spit out whatever water you've got, you know, give it a, give it a break, come back to it again. And then we do it in like five, we do it five at a time. So five, 10 second spurts. And you know, the idea is that you want to do that, you know, at least three times over the course of the day. Ideally, it's four to five, but I try to kind of get them to do different things where it's the aggressive gargling in addition to and get in your car and sing on the way to work, turn on the music, don't turn on the radio, <laughs> don't listen to anything, just like make yourself happy, sing. And then maybe when you're bored, you can take your pen and just kind of stick it in the back of your tongue and kind of do a little, little, you know, uh, um, of the tongue depressors and, you know, do the little, um, triggering your gag reflex, which sounds worse than it is <laughs> when you get used to it. But that you really do those things pretty consistently over the course of the day. And with the singing, do we? I was reading somewhere about the level of singing that it needs to be quite strong and powerful singing rather than yeah. weak and mild singing. Is that correct? It's true. It's why you need to do it in your car. <laughs> <laughs> To irritate the least amount of people and you can feel the most free to be able to turn up the volume on your music and just like sing out. It needs to be like full on. And if you're not comfortable with that, then I will usually say like, well, are you okay with like, um, I'll just say, just do like, um, um, you would what, maybe when you're, you're like a chant type of thing, like, ah, uh, you know, just really kind of going out with one particular vowel, ah, ee, just trying to kind of with, you know, maintain, sustain a note basically as much as you possibly can. It's all about that vibration. That's the most important thing. So if you're just like, you know, it's not going to do what we need it to do. So don't do it at home if people are home and you're going to be embarrassed. Go someplace where you can really sing out loud. And I think that singing also has another wonderful benefit and that is I think it's really difficult to be sad when you're singing uh, and particularly if yeah. you put on all of your favourite songs, the songs that you know no matter what will really get you going. It's a great way to start the day. I love singing. Um, I, my, I come from a very musical family and uh, I even have had singing lessons in the past just because I love to sing so much and, and I found it so wonderful. Now I know I was actually really helping my vagal nerve <laughs> tone uh, inadvertently. <laughs> And um, well, and joy helps you as well, right? So that's the another thing around that helping to support the vagus nerve is like putting yourself in very joyful situations, right? So whether that's a social situation that's very joyful, or even the singing, like you do, right? So putting yourself into that kind of that height uh, can be really beneficial in all of this. It can definitely. 
Now, we talked about um, sensitivities to certain foods or even um, you know components of foods. One really common one that I see a lot in our SIBO group, uh, in, the, in the whole SIBO group out there, is histamine intolerance. Can we talk a little bit about why this occurs quite commonly with a SIBO patient? Sure. Yeah. Just just to give you a little background on what histamines are and how they all function in the body, and then I'll, I'll take it to your question. But I'll give, just give you a little bit, a little bit of background on it. Um, so histamine is basically this chemical that the body produces, just naturally produces, um, usually a mediator to you know uh, different in different biochemical processes. Um, we typically think of histamines more in like um, you know allergy response. So if we are allergic to pollen, we inhale it, and then we get this allergic response, and we release all this histamine, and then we take antihistamine, and it kind of calms everything down. So we kind of think more of histamines from that perspective, but histamines are related in, are, are involved in a number of different biochemical processes. So they help support a digestive process. Um, they help regulate uh, our hormones, estrogen and progesterone. Um, it's a neurotransmitter. It can help build GABA and serotonin and dopamine. Uh, it helps regulate our sleep. It helps regulate temperature. Um, and it's involved in immune response and just a number of, of things it does in the body. So, <clears throat> excuse me, when we are what we say histamine intolerant, the situation is when the body is building too much histamine. Okay, so we're building a lot of histamine, perhaps in relation to all these biochemical processes. And for whatever reason, and we can get to, to um, thoughts around that later, but for whatever reason, we're building so much histamine that we're kind of overpowering our, our, regula- our regulatory enzyme. And so the enzyme that helps us to break that histamine down so that it doesn't become problematic is called Diamine oxidase is one of them, and the other one is called HNMT, or histamine N-methyltransferase. But DAO is the one that we usually talk about the most, because we make most of that in the gut. So uh, if we're building a lot of histamine, and we don't have enough enzyme to break that down, then we're going to end up with a lot more circulating histamine in the body. And this is when we kind of run into issues related to histamine intolerance. And for your patients who have SIBO, how that can kind of play into the situation is that because um, SIBO creates a level of inflammation in our digestive tract. So uh, what that can do is it can reduce the amount of DAO that our gut can produce. So what we end up seeing is higher levels of circulating histamine. And what we can also see is that there are different types of bacteria Um, that are in our gut. And some can produce more histamine and some have more uh, ability to degrade histamine. And uh, for those who might produce more histamine, uh, we might be working with that you have a bacterial overgrowth of more histamine producing bacteria. And for those who are experiencing this level of histamine intolerance, you can be seeing a lot of gut issues. So we can be seeing like the same stuff we would see with SIBO. You'd see gas and bloat and um, usually diarrhea, sometimes constipation, often heartburn. So you can see things that look exactly like SIBO. Um, But you might also get these other symptoms going on. And this is kind of where I work a lot with histamines is because we might see more joint pain. Uh, and swelling. We might, you know, see that kind of typical allergy symptom kind of stuff like sneezing or runny nose or watery, itchy eyes or hives, hives or itchy skin. 
um, asthma, you know, migraines, headaches, uh, insomnia, hot flashes. You know, we might see all of these symptoms start to increase outside or in, in conjunction with the gut stuff that one is experiencing. So it's really, really common, at least in my population, it's, the histamine intolerance is so common that it's really the thing that I assess for first because I see typically all of these symptoms that I just described, I see in my patients. There's the joint pain, there's the joint swelling, but there's often all of these other symptoms going on in addition to the gut. So when I'm assessing, I will often really assess almost first and foremost for histamine intolerance. And if I take down the histamines uh, in the diet, there, there's a number of, of um, foods that contain histamine in them. And so I will put <clears throat> someone on a low histamine diet. And if I see that there are benefits to that, then I need to start thinking, much like someone who has SIBO, I need to be thinking, what are the underlying causes? What are all the pieces that contribute to that histamine intolerance? And the five areas that I look at the most are, I've already looked at the diet. Okay, if we take histamines down, uh, uh, histamines in the diet down, and there's improvements. Okay, we know that there's a histamine intolerance going on. Okay, so then I look to the patient's environments. Are they living in a house that's moldy? Are they in an area that they're incredibly allergic to that's making them, them have all of these reactions? Um, I'm looking at the level of stress that they are under, and that comes back to emotional stress and how it can impact histamine uh, production. Um, I look at the possibility of hormonal imbalances. Many of my patients are in their 40s or 50s and are women and are kind of entering menopause. We might start to see more histamine issues in relation to a perimenopausal state. And then, finally, um, I test all of my patients who have histamine intolerance for SIBO because... I would say in most cases where we have histamine intolerance, SIBO is a factor. SIBO is contributing to the inflammation in the gut that is making us more deficient in that DAO. And that oftentimes, if we have SIBO, when we treat that SIBO, that histamine intolerance shifts down considerably. So we see all of these external symptoms related to the histamine intolerance, which was related to the SIBO, really shift down. Now we still have to figure out why they have the SIBO, <laughs> but at least we've got the patient much more comfortable. And is there a way that can you can test for histamine intolerance or is it more based on what's happening symptomatically? You know, I'm I'm much more gold standard when it comes to all of this. I'm 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 a diet, I'm a functional dietitian, so I work with the food, um, and I find it to be the most uh, um, uh, accurate. So uh, to answer your question, yeah, you can get uh, blood tests that test your uh, histamine levels. You can get a uh, it's called a 24-hour urinary methylhistamine test. Uh, there are some labs that are out there that are testing your actual DAO. So they'll look at how much histamine you have versus the amount of DAO. So if you're high histamine, low DAO, that could indicate that's what's going on. But um, I have not found those tests to be that reliable, for one thing, because our histamine levels fluctuate so much during the day. So you could check your blood and see a really high histamine level one hour, and then a couple hours later, it might dip down below normal again. So, you know, diagnosing based on that is not really recommended. I mean, you can gather these things. They're very expensive tests. So I'm much more like, look, take two weeks, <laughs> take the histamines out, see how you do, and then add things back in. Now, that's 
with the understanding that I'm, I'm starting with someone who's not really, you know, hasn't torn their diet apart for SIBO and <laughs> taken out the maps and taken out the starches and taken everything out. I'm really aware of not wanting to tear too much out of the diet at one time. So um, I will, you know, but for, for those patients who were on our first visit, they haven't done much as far as the diet is concerned. And then I will usually take histamines out of the diet first and see how they do. And two weeks is enough time. Sometimes they'll notice within a few days, but usually two weeks is enough time to get a really good sense of whether or not histamines in the diet are impacting you. Um, if you're not quite sure after the two weeks, you might think things are better, but you're not clear, then what I usually recommend is like, look, add them back in, go through the whole challenge process, just dump your histamines back in. And if you're reactive, it's bringing back the symptoms and there's a certain level of histamine tolerance present. And we just know that that's one of the issues that we're working with. But again, histamine intolerance is usually a symptom of something else. We have to get to the underlying cause of why your body is producing so much histamine. And so that becomes then more investigative work. Is it just the SIBO or is there more than that? Mm. And this is a, such a critical piece and um, uh, something that I, you know, I, I'm not sure that all practitioners are looking deeply, deeply, deeply into the underlying cause that, um, you know, just because I hear from so many people from around the world that they get given a round of rifaximin and told to go on their merry way and that really doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't answer why the body became dysfunctional in the first place. How do you, like, what do you generally look for in terms of what could be those, um, you know, the underlying reasons why dysfunction has occurred and why histamine intolerance has occurred or SIBO has occurred or even we're going, I know we're talking, going to be talking about autoimmunity and inflammation. Um, how do you unravel that puzzle? And, and do you find that you have patients that you just can't unravel, unravel it and you just don't have a clear-cut answer as to why things have gone wrong? Oh, sure. <laughs> I think anybody who specializes in this would say, absolutely. You know, there are just some, some mysteries and some, some cases are, are easier than others. Um, you know, I, I know you hear this over and over and over again, but everybody, and you, and you, know, you see this with your clients, everybody is so different. You know, you, you um, can treat one patient one way and see the next patient who has the same exact symptoms and the same exact issues and treat them the exact same way. And it just doesn't work on that particular person. So you really do have to get into that underlying story and, and try and kind of, you're, you're a detective, right? And all you're trying to do is kind of figure out all of these pieces. So if I'm starting with histamine intolerance, let's say I'm starting there, then I got to, okay, let's, let's think about all the pieces that are going to contribute to that histamine intolerance, I'd say, you know, number one is stress. <laughs> number one, I think in, in our collective consciousness <laughs> these days is stress. And I think we have a pretty major epidemic going on. And I think that that is probably one of the major key factors that I'm seeing in both histamine intolerance as well as uh, SIBO. And I know that SIBO, there's so many other reasons why we can have SIBO, why, why we have that dysmotility. Um, <clears throat> and 
you know, we might see, obviously with SIBO, you know, we've, we've talked about all the underlying pieces, you know, going the food poisoning and, you know, uh, PPI use and, uh, you know, antibiotics and any number of, you know, issues that could be leading to that dysmotility. So we always have to get to that underlying dysmotility because, you know, if that is our core reason why you're getting the histamine intolerance and that SIBO continues to come back, then your histamine intolerance is going to come back and all of your other symptoms are going to come back as well. So we really have to get to that underlying cause, but it is really a matter of, of, of really talking to the patient. I'm like saying, look, we got to go back. We, gotta go, we might have to go back like, like you, right? We have to go back to birth, right? This didn't just... Your gut symptoms didn't just occur over the course of time. We have to go back to that place of when things started. How were you as a child? And let's go through um, any major emotional traumas as a child, if they're willing to do that. And sometimes my patients are, and sometimes they're not. But, you know, even if they, I, I just need to know, was there a level of trauma going on, you know, that could have potentially, you know, triggered something in you? And, you know, if there is, then we can leave it there. But all that tells me is that this body is used to going to a higher place of stress, to a higher, that, that trauma takes that brain to a higher place. And so it is conditioned to go to that higher place. So as we then recover from that trauma, as we move through life, as we then encounter other traumas or other stressors, our brain is much more inclined to go to that peak, to go to that higher space. And in some cases, stay there, depending upon what's going on in the adult life. And if we have that persistent and chronic stress going on, well, that can impact motility of the gut. That can impact uh, SIBO. That can impact uh, mast cell response. That can impact, um, you know, more triggering of histamine. This can, it can get that whole cascade going. And, you know, this can also impact that autoimmune response as well. So I really look to the whole picture of, you know, childhood traumas, um, and then, you know, was there food poisoning? When did it happen? Does it correlate with when the gut started? Then you have to really go through your whole um, bio, and you can do that yourself and really kind of pick out different points. But it's funny, when I talk to patients and have them go through, no one's ever asked them those questions before. And it's amazing to kind of see these lights go off and go, oh, yeah, you know, when I was 10, I, or when I was, you know, 18, I, you know, that I, you can kind of put it together yourself and put together this really beautiful picture where you can go, okay, I think I see where we need to go here, <laughs> you know, uh, whether that's related to trauma or that's related to the food poisoning or whether that's related to the eight rounds of antibiotics they had for their acne when they were 15 or, you know, you kind of have to just kind of think through um, what's gone on in someone's life, and then you get in from there. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey. 
Hey guys, do you feel completely overwhelmed when it comes to figuring out what you can eat that's suitable for a SIBO diet? I know that I felt so overwhelmed at the start of my SIBO journey. And let's be honest, eating for SIBO can be challenging. It can downright suck at points. You've already got so much going on. You've got your treatments. You're trying to remember to take all your medications and your supplements And not to mention all of the daily symptoms that you have to experience, the pain, the bloating, the constipation or diarrhea or both, and the brain fog and exhaustion. The list just goes on. Having someone else take that hassle away from you for planning your food can make your day just that little bit easier. And this is where I've come to your rescue. I've developed SIBO meal plans just for you. They take all of the stress away from planning your SIBO daily food intake. They're based on the SIBO biphasic diet by Dr. Narala Jacoby, and each meal plan is just for the specific phase it relates to. So you may be on phase one restricted or phase one semi-restricted or phase two reduce and repair, and there is a meal plan just for you. We've got 14 days of SIBO-friendly meals and recipes included. There's weekly shopping lists. There's handy hints and tips to make cooking easier. And every recipe is 100% gluten-free. The recipes are low-grain. We only use a little bit of rice or quinoa in the recipes depending on what phase you're following, of course. All the recipes are low carbohydrate, very low dairy, low sugar, and there are low FODMAP options included. The great news is that you can download it instantly and you can get cooking today. If you'd like to know more about the SIBO meal plans, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash SIBO hyphen meal hyphen plans or head to the show notes from today's episode and just click on the link there. I hope you enjoy the meal plans, guys. I know it's going to save you so much time, energy and effort and help you be compliant to your SIBO diet as you go through your treatment. Now let's get back to the show. It was interesting um, when I was out in the States recently, I was um, very lucky to spend some time in Florida with Larry and Belinda Wern from Clear Passage oh, yeah. Physical Therapies and because one of my suspected um, underlying motility or structural issues has been adhesions. And they um, very kindly, um, I was able to be assessed while I was in Florida and sure enough, I'm full of adhesions. So I've, I've answered a piece of that puzzle, but in order for them to assess me, I needed to do a very thorough um sort of medical history. And whilst I've talked a lot about my medical history and what I know now to be some of the underlying causes and risk factors of me developing SIBO, when I had it all in one document, it was really powerful. I was like, wow, it's it's actually, <laughs> there is no way I really wouldn't have ended up with SIBO because look at everything that happened to me from day one. No wonder my system was starting to fall apart. I was just surviving with it for a long time, ignoring my symptoms. But it's no wonder I ended up how I am today. And I know I, I speak to many people at that uh, right at the early stages, they've just been diagnosed with SIBO. And as they start to learn about it, they feel quite um, 
upset and disillusioned that this thing isn't going to go away with one round of antibiotics and they feel quite angry about that. And I I know that feeling because I felt that way myself. Um, But I really see SIBO as a blessing because it gives you the opportunity to start peeling back these layers so that you can unravel some of the stuff that's happened to you. Some stuff you may not be able to unravel, but at least, you know, if you can unravel even if it's 50% of the things that have failed in your body to allow SIBO to develop, you'll you'll have a much better life than if you just didn't do any work. And um, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And when you talk about that, you know, those adhesions and that's, that's, I didn't even mention that. I mean, that's, I see that more often than not as well, you know, certainly, um, you know, relation to endometriosis or uh, abdominal surgeries or any level of trauma to the, to the gut. Um, I see that all the time. And I do see that that visceral manipulation can be so beneficial uh, in that situation and really be a major, um, major player in terms of the healing process. And it's funny, now I know for sure that I have adhesions. And um, when Larry was able to point out, okay, now there's this big, I mean, I've got a size of a broccoli head around the site where my appendix came out and site of my ileocecal valve. And, and I've got some more pulling on my rib cage. I'm, I, there's all sorts in there. And in my belly button where I was um, had m- multiple surgeries go through my belly button. Um, oh and gosh. he said, have you never felt this before? And as he was pressing on the adhesions, I was like, oh, yeah, I felt that. <laughs> and he said, well, what did you think it was? And I said, I, I don't know. I'd never thought about it. I just, it was so commonplace in my body. I've got so used to it that I didn't think yeah. about it because it's just been part of me. It's like an arm or a leg. Yeah. And he said, well, that's been your adhesions pulling. That's what you felt. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> and it's so that's interesting huge. when we get this awareness, um, we become conscious of things. We then realize, hey, uh, this has been with me a long time. Well, yeah, we get used to, I mean, you know, you, even even people who have had diarrhea their whole life, they think, doesn't everybody have diarrhea? You know, you just, you think that it's it's just a part of who you are. So you don't think any differently and until somebody says that that's not okay and that's not the way it should be. So we're so attuned to how our bodies are, but we're not really attuned to how they should be. Um, exactly. Yeah. And I've, I've had um, some of my coaching program clients at the chronic constipated people. And they have said to me, you know, Rebecca, I didn't know I was chronically constipated until I heard you talking about the fact you only went to the toilet to maybe, maybe two or three times a week. And that was your normal. And they were like, that's my normal. I didn't realize I was constipated either because that's been how I've always gone to the toilet. And when it is your normal, you don't realize it's abnormal because it's been normal for you. And that can be a really interesting part of this SIBO journey and and recovering from chronic um, or poor health uh, that you realize that what you thought was normal really isn't normal. <laughs> now, we've talked a bit about inflammation and I'd like to dive into that and also auto, autoimmunity. And I'm interested to hear from you just the, the journey. Is it inflammation first, autoimmunity second, or autoimmunity first, inflammation second? Is there a kind of recognized pathway into how autoimmunity occurs and and the role that inflammation plays within that? Yeah. Well, I mean, there has to be an immune response first. So there is a, there's has to be a trigger of some sort that says, okay, go. And, you know, there's always going to be a genetic 
component here, right? There's usually needs to be some level of genetic predisposition uh, where, you know, something needs to get triggered. Something needs to, you know, trigger that genetic expression. Um, so in most cases, we're working with genes, what's going to trigger that. And then we're going to, and, you know, often stress, <laughs> we're back to stress again, but often, and not just stress, but, you know, really extended stress. And that could be, you know, a, a, a bacteria or a virus that gets in, you know, you get really sick and it's a really bad virus for an extended period of time. Um, you know, it could be a surgery that your body just overreacted to that, that triggered things. Um, you know, it could be any number of, of things that, or emotional stressors, if it's an extended emotional stress, um, then we can see, um, a, a trigger there as well. But we're, we're starting a, an immune cascade that then, you know, basically goes wrong <laughs> and, um, you know, an autoimmune situation, there's, there's inflammation and that's one thing because that's something that typically will die down when we're working, well, or it's a little easier to treat. When we're working with autoimmunity, you know, something's shifted and the body thinks that uh, it is the enemy. And so it starts turning. So whatever immune response is going on gets now directed at the, the tissue within, the, you know, within yourself. And then that's, that's a problem because that needs to get turned off because now you're damaging yourself. It's not just a matter of like being in pain or being inflamed. Now we have actual damage going on. And that autoimmune response, um, you know, can cause a, a lot of pain, a lot of joint destruction or organ destruction or connective tissue uh, destruction. So it's, you know, really trying to get out of that. Uh, when we're working with autoimmunity, we're trying to reduce that destructive response. And in doing so, we're trying to reduce the immune response and reduce that then level of inflammation that you are experiencing. And do you see a link between people with SIBO um, and also autoimmune conditions? It's hard to say. I mean, I certainly, you know, the autoimmune patients are the patients that I see here. So I see a lot of rheumatoid arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis or psoriatic arthritis or scleroderma or, you know, uh, any number of autoimmune conditions, thyroiditis. Um, uh, is there a link? I, I have seen it. Yes. Is it causal? I, I don't know. Um, is it correlative? I would have to say from my observation, yes. There are, you know, we're certainly early in our studies around SIBO. There are a few studies that link SIBO to rheumatoid arthritis, um, some to uh, other connective tissue diseases such as Bichette's or EDS. Um, and, uh, you know, but it, it, you know, there's not a lot of research to really say, yes, SIBO causes this. And I haven't, you know, it's hard to say, is this causal or, or is it just contributory? Um, so difficult to say. However, I will say that, um, you know, treating when I see someone, they already have the autoimmune disease and they have the SIBO. <laughs> Which came first? I have no idea. So when I treat the SIBO in many of these patients, we will see a calming of their immune response. Now, does that put the patient into remission? Not necessarily. So, but it can significantly calm what they're experiencing. And especially since I do work in a medical clinic, we're working with a lot of different, um, you know, uh, drugs that are, 
designed to reduce inflammation. So it's always interesting to me to see, it's like, oh, this patient's in a lot of pain. They're on four different anti-inflammatories, you know, a biologic, a DMARD, and an anti-inflammatory, and they're still in pain. Something else is what's up. Something else is going on, and their gut's a mess. Oh, and look, they have SIBO. Oh, and when we treat this and we start to calm the gut, then we start to see things calm down. So it's, it, it is very individualized. It's very, you know, but I, I'm, I see a really high, um, uh, number of cases here at the clinic and a very high number of cases, um, with those with autoimmune conditions. Um, now I'm not treating a general population, so therefore I'm not testing a general population. So I'm pretty biased in that sense. Um, but I would say definitely high level of gut issues and definitely a high level of SIBO. Um, and whether, but not everybody who has autoimmunity has SIBO and not everybody who has autoimmunity has gut issues. So I just want to make sure that it's understood. Could there be a, a correlation? Absolutely. Um, but beyond that, it's really hard to say without really concrete evidence. Mm. A condition that um, I, again, this is anecdotal, um, but that I seem, that I hear from a lot of women um, that have SIBO that they also have endometriosis. Is endo a, an autoimmune condition or like, do you, would you classify it as that? I, you know, it, no, <laughs> I would say no. I think, yeah, when, when you're working with endometriosis, you're working more in the OB world. When you're working more with OBGYN world, um, and they might, but typically we do not work with that. So it's not something that I work a lot with. I do see women who have it, but it's not considered part of their treatment. So really, we're just kind of working more with um, actual autoimmunity, actual, you know, like uh, joints issues, organ involvement, things like that. But no, I wouldn't classify that. Another practitioner might, but it's not something that I would in my world, no. Mm. And if yeah. we have one autoimmune condition, are we more predisposed to having another? And, you know, are they kind of on oh, one sure. big spectrum of autoimmunity or are they? do you see them as individual um, diseases or conditions? Um, I think you are more inclined to. So, you know, for instance, someone who has Hashimoto's thyroiditis, uh, which is an autoimmune condition related to the thyroid, um, you're more inclined to have another type of autoimmune condition, whether that's, you know, celiac disease or rheumatoid arthritis. So one does, one can predispose you simply because, you know, the body's just working in that way. It's more inflamed, it's more on, and it's more and more... Uh, liable to turn on itself. Mm. And when it comes to that inflammation piece, what can we be doing to help calm the inflammation? Should we, uh, and I know we've talked a lot about stress and, and diet, are there other things that we can do or take that help calm inflammation down? Um, you know, I do a... Um, you know, if we've already kind of gone through the gut stuff, we've gone through the stress stuff, we've gone through everything else. Um, you know, there are certain things that I do use, and it also depends upon whether we're working with histamines or not. Um, if we found that histamines are a part of the situation, that I might recommend things that are specific to histamines, um, and in which case I might work. Let's say I'm working with histamines. 
Um, and we've treated the SIBO. We still have histamines and the hormones are fine and the stress is fine and everything is good. We can't quite figure this situation out. Then I might work with more antihistamine supplementation. Um, so I love working vitamin C I find is really well tolerated by people and I'll do high doses. I'll move into like the 5,000 milligram range in divided doses, kind of working your way up. Um, I'll work with black currant seed oil. I'll work with, um, omega threes, um, vitamin D and, um, certainly, uh, probiotics that are, uh, that do not contain bacteria that have been shown to, um, produce histamine. So I try to kind of bring in other strains that might actually help to degrade the histamine more. Um, and then turmeric as well. Like that's something that I, you know, I, I work with quite a lot. Um, and it can be very beneficial as far as reducing um, inflammation in the guts, but also just sort of reducing systemic inflammation. So those are the things. And, and yeah, I think, and I'd say if we're also working with histamines and there is a stress component that I also might be working more with adrenal support as well, because those adrenals can also be involved in part of that immune response. So we just kind of, I'm trying to kind of calm things as much as possible when we're working with histamine issues. Um, if we're not working with histamine issues, um, then I'm going to be, uh, uh, well, one other thing I forgot what, with the histamine is quercetin. I do work a lot with quercetin and bromelain. Um, those are just a few antihistamine supplements that I find to be beneficial. Um, if we're not working with histamine issues, it's just a general, uh, you know, inflammation going on. We just can't figure out what's happening. Um, then I, you know, I do real general stuff to see if it's of any benefit. Uh, you know, working back with the, the turmeric, um, fish oil, vitamin D, uh, and probiotics. So I'm just kind of trying to kind of work different systems and um, see if that is, is beneficial to them. It really, again, we're back to the individual and, and what are all the systems that are at play. So it's hard to kind of put a general. I just kind of make sure that all of my patients are at least taking this certain um, cache of supplementation just to kind of cover bases. And then we really try to get in with the diet as much as possible and, you know, really try to, to feed this body and, you know, reduce the things that are more problematic as, as much as is tolerated and as much as that will keep the, the patient sane and really try to, um, you know, I really, as many plants as they can tolerate, if their gut's going to tolerate it and I can work those plants into the body, in, into the system, if I can get the, you know, the greens and the fruits and the veg and the nuts and the legume and the seed and really shift down on the refined stuff, shift down on, you know, even just grains in general, trying to keep a certain level there. And honestly, trying to keep the meats to a certain place as well. We kind of focus a lot on meat when we're working with SIBO diets, especially. But I, um, I find them to be a little bit more problematic, especially like in people with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, I, I try to keep them there because I think that people need a certain amount, but I try not to make them the star of the show. I really try to kind of keep them uh, maybe on par with the carbohydrates, try to keep things relatively low and really make the plants the star of the show as much as the patient will tolerate. Now, this becomes more of an issue when we're working with SIBO patients because often plants don't go so well. So it really becomes a matter of, okay, what are you going to tolerate? What plants are you going to be able to, to get into this system? And you might need to do a little bit more animal protein and a little less grain. Uh, and maybe as we continue to treat and balance this out, then maybe we can kind of get you back to that balance of more plants and less of these other potentially inflammatory 
um, foods in the diet. I know that that, uh, that meat consumption can often be quite um, concerning for people, particularly those that weren't eating a lot of meat beforehand and then they go into their SIBO treatment program and they lament the fact that there's so much meat on their plate. I was really lucky. I was able to tolerate um, all of the SIBO vegetables right from the start. I could have raw vegetables and cooked vegetables. And so I didn't really struggle too much with that because I tried to keep my plate as full of vegetables as I could. But, um, you know, I know for many people there, you know, they're, they're only eating a couple of vegetables and then the rest of their plate is protein and, and fats. And they're just like, Oh, I need my veggies. (laughs) It's hard. (laughs) It's really hard. Yeah. I mean, my goal, my, my whole goal is first of all, to determine if there's any foods that are problematic. And then once we determine that, my goal is to get those foods back in. Like that becomes my primary goal. Like that's the end, right? That's the end of this road for me is can I get this diet back for this person? Because, you know, I mean, having to sustain this level of restriction is a very challenging thing from a long-term perspective. And I'm, you know, I'm like, um, you know, many of the dietitians who, who specialize in this, um, you had Angela Pfeiffer on uh, a few podcasts ago. And for anyone who hasn't listened to that podcast, it's, I, I consider it like essential listening. I find that, um, you know, what Angela said around um, building the diet to the individual um, it is incredibly important and, and building the, the, um, the treatment to the individual and incredibly important. And I would say any, everything that she said, I would say absolutely ditto. So if you haven't heard that podcast, listeners, go back and listen to that. It's an excellent podcast. Um, so what I'm really trying to do is build as much into this diet as I possibly can, as, as is possibly tolerated. Um, and, and with the, with the eye on building it even more. And so what that means is I got to, you know, get them down this road and treat in, in the ways that I know how. Uh, and, you know, whether that's from a stress perspective or a SIBO perspective or a histamine tolerance and perspective or a supplemental perspective or probiotics or all these things, my goal is to figure out how am I going to get you from this place that's more restrictive um, because it's keeping your symptoms under control to that place that really opens things back up without it flaring your symptoms again. That is my primary goal as a practitioner. And it just has to be based on what that individual needs. Mm. And I think that can be, um, it can be difficult for patients, for the SIBOers out there who they want um, one protocol that they can follow. Uh, They don't, they just want it, you know, packaged up nicely. I know I did. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't feel exist. like I had the, the energy to go and do all of this detective work and I ended up doing it and I'm really grateful that I did. But um, it can be really difficult when you're like, just tell me what diet to follow. Why isn't there one <laughs> diet for SIBO? Why are there so many different diets? And then, and I know that a lot of um, frustration out there is that there's people feel that there's conflicting information around what, you know, one diet says you can eat this, one diet says you can't eat this, um, one diet says you should only do this for this length of time, one diet says you can do it forever. Uh, and I think that causes great frustration and confusion out there amongst SIBO patients. And why I think that anyone that feels that um, – the nutrition piece of their treatment just isn't their strength or, or their interest. Investing in a dietitian like yourself, Heidi, 
or somebody else or a nutritionist that specialises in this world around like working with people with digestive issues um, can be really beneficial. It really is an investment in your health rather than a cost. And I myself work with a nutritionist, um, even though I'm passionate about food because I haven't gone to university to study nutrition or dietetics yet. Maybe one day I will, but um, <laughs> it, you know, I recognize sometimes you just need that person on your team and it might only be for a short period of time. It might be a long period of time, but they can bring that expertise to take that burden off you. So you don't need to be worrying about everything when it comes to your treatment. Put that in the hands of the expert. Let them do the worrying about you. You just need to focus on, you know, enjoying life today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the fact that there are so many SIBO diets tells you that there is no one SIBO diet, right? Like that should tell you alone that there's a lot of lot, lot to work with here. And I, I see that with histamine intolerance as well. You can go online and see 10 different lists and they all look different. It's the same thing going to FODMAP lists. You can go online and see 10 different lists and they all look different. And that's where people get really, really frustrated. And that's where I just say, look, let's just start with one place. Start with one, you know, let's, let's really look, first of all, what do you tolerate? What do you notice? What are you more reactive to? And, you know, and so let's, let's start there. And usually they've already kind of self-selected things out. So let's just start there. Because if it means, you know, if I'm already seeing the patient is like on 18 foods, maybe, you know, a third of which are still FODMAPs, and I see that they have SIBO, I'm not going to take those other third out, <laughs> like, no, the diet stays. We change nothing about this diet, you know, and we move forward and we still get the same results as the next person who's like, no, I'm going to do this 100%. I'm taking all the starches out and all the SIBA and all the FODMAPs out. You know, it's like we can get the same results. You know, really, it's all about keeping the patient comfortable as long as we possibly can through this long and arduous process. And we have to keep them sane. We have to keep them as happy as we possibly can. But we also just have to make sure that this person is getting nourished. Mm. And so it really does become, you know, uh, I think really important to individualize. And, and I would agree if you have a, a dietitian in your area or a, or a nutritionist in your area, someone who specializes in SIBO or who specializes in autoimmunity, make sure the specialty is there. That's a really important piece, um, depending upon what you're experiencing. Um, just because I, you want someone, if it's not a dietitian nutritionist, then it's a naturopath who specializes in food, um, that you want someone who really understands the ins and outs of these really complex conditions. Cause they, you know, again, what works for one person does not work for the next. So you need someone who's really experienced with working with having worked this for a while, worked a lot of different cases and has, and has, has an enormous toolbox, um, from which to work really important. It really is. And and don't, I always say to people, don't be um, shy to interview them. You're bringing them into your team. It's like if you're bringing an employee into your business, um, you want to make sure that this is the right person because well, they want to know, make sure that you're the right fit for them as a practitioner, but also you want to make sure that they're the right fit for you. And, um, and by asking some simple questions around you know, do you specialize in SIBO? What experience do you have yeah. it, with it? How long have you been treating patients with it? Um, what do you find has been successful for you? All those kinds of questions. Um, I'm sure a practitioner won't mind answering those questions that you have because then 
they want to be having successful outcomes as much as you do as well. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quite ruthless these days with my discussions with potential dream team members for my healthcare team because I want to invest uh, and I want my investment to um, pay dividends. So I need to make sure I like them. That's first and foremost. If I don't have a good rapport with that person, then it's not going to work at all, regardless of their skills or expertise. But then I also want to check that I, you know, their skills and expertise um, really match what my requirements are. And uh, and then I tell them they're part of a team. And here are the other people on my team. This is what I'm working with these other people for. Um, you're one of X number of people that I'm working with at the moment and this is why I have my naturopath and this is why I have you and and um, and that helps them, I find, to know that they're part of my journey mm-hmm. um, and I've found that I've had great results with that. Great. You're, you're a very responsible practitioner, Rebecca. <laughs> you're a good practitioner. That's exactly what you got to do. It has to benefit the, has to benefit everybody, right? It, it, you absolutely need to benefit the patient, but it has to make everybody needs to be in sync with one another. And if they're not, it really gets in the way of, of the success. And it really, it's all about getting that person to where they want to go. So finding that right team for them is, is really critical. So that's good that you're really kind of yeah, and and something I heard in, on an interview just recently, which has it has just resonated so powerful powerfully with me. And again, I often find that I am doing things, and then I hear someone talk about it, and I'm like, oh, I've been doing that. But this interview was about respecting yourself, and that you are worth your investment into your health. And mm-hmm. like if you were to go and buy a Lamborghini, you wouldn't put poor fuel into the car. You would put the most premium f- fuel and you'd treat the car with just the utmost respect because it was very valuable and expensive. Well, we are valuable and expensive beings in that sense. So we're yeah. worth the investment in our health. And by investing in the right dream team, investing in the right nutrition, investing in the right stress management and lifestyle management, we are all worth it. And um, investing in a dietitian like yourself, Heidi, for those people that, um, you know, invest in you. I, I have many people who I have uh, contact with who are some of your patients and they love working with you. They were very excited that you were coming <laughs> onto the podcast today because um, they're so excited to be one part of, um, to have you on their dream team. But it's really, it really does make um, the difference. And, and I have said this before and I will always say it again, that think of your future self who your future yeah. self wants you to be. And when and I look at my 85-year-old Rebecca self and I think, well, what does 85-year-old Rebecca want me to be doing right, right now? And I'm, am I making the decision today that is going to enable me to live healthily and happily and fruitfully at age 85 when I'm standing here on this planet at age 39 today? And that really That's helps. true encourage me to keep going and and I have my highs and my lows and I'm I'm not I'm definitely not perfect but I'm always thinking to what does my future look like and I want a very vibrant and healthy older age and not to be one riddled full of disease and you know I have to work at it because just based on my history and when my listeners really think back of their history um you know I've got a lot of 
black marks against me, but it doesn't mean I have to end up diseased if mm-hmm. I'm sensible about it today. And, you know, and what you are experiencing now may be different than what, and what you need right now might be different than what you're going to need in 10 years. And for you to be intuitive with yourself so that you can make those changes, right, as your hormones change or as life circumstances change. So, because what you needed when you were 25 is different than what you need now. What you needed when you were 10 is different than what you needed when you were 25, right? So as we age and as we go through, our needs change and we have to listen. We have to listen to what our bodies are telling us. And so if what you are um, practicing now in 10 years, the body may say, you know, I think you might need to do that a little bit differently. We have to be okay with saying, oh, yeah, okay. I guess it's time to change that now. Exactly. And, yeah, the intuition is key in all of this. It really is. And that goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of our chat today, which is around really becoming in tune and in touch with the body to really listen to what it needs. And uh, and I'm forever modifying and tweaking and changing and listening and, um, and, you know, really hearing what my body needs. Heidi, it's been just a joy to have you on the Healthy Gut podcast today. If people would like to reach out and connect with you, how can they do that? Sure. They can go to my website. Uh, it's foodlogic.org. And that's where I have my uh, private practice where I see uh, people Skype-based. I do uh, Skype-based consults and I do also do Skype-based mentoring with professionals as well. And if they're in the Seattle area, I am uh, in practice at the Seattle Arthritis Clinic, which is the seattlearthritisclinic.org. Wonderful. And all those links are in the show notes. So Heidi Turner, it's been great. Thank you so much for sharing your uh, wonderful knowledge with the listeners of the Healthy Gut Podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me, Rebecca. It's been really lovely. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Heidi Turner. Isn't she just gorgeous? As I said in my interview with her, I just wanted to reach through and give her a hug. Uh, And you can really tell that she just absolutely loves what she does. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to leave a rating and review in iTunes or the app you use to listen to the podcast. And I wanted to say a really big thank you to those of you that have left ratings and reviews already. It just warms the cockles of my heart. I really love seeing that. But not only that, you know, not just for my own personal satisfaction, but it really helps others to find this podcast and to know it's the right podcast for them. So if you've been thinking about leaving a rating or review, it would be great if you could do so and write it in the sense that someone just like you is looking at it and wondering if they should press play. So tell them what you think that they need to know about this podcast and come say hi to us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. We're on all the key platforms. We've got a whole heap of content that I'm sharing on those platforms from recipes to tips to videos to articles and interviews with other specialists. So it's really great to see you on those platforms. Look for us under The Healthy Gut. Now, coming up on next week's show, we are joined once again by Dr. Melanie Keller. Now, I know you guys have absolutely loved the interviews I've done with her previously, and I think next week's one was 
going to fit the bill once again because we're talking about methane-dominant SIBO. And I know that those of us that have had methane-dominant SIBO, methane SIBO, and those of you with methane-dominant SIBO, I had hydrogen-dominant SIBO, will find this really interesting because we're talking specifically about that form of SIBO. So I hope you enjoy next week's episode with Dr. Melanie Keller. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.